Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We have a special edition uh, this week. We are going to uh, have our usual off-the-cuff podcast, but it's also going to be broadcast uh, separately by the Community Media Center of Marin on Marin TV. And we're doing a deep dive on the COVID-19 pandemic. And for this very timely, important conversation, without hyperbole, I don't think I could imagine anyone in the world that would be better to have this conversation with here on my podcast. Uh, we are joined by Dr. Larry Brilliant, a world-renowned epidemiologist and expert on infectious diseases. He's also uh, a best-selling author, technologist, and philanthropist. Uh, with the possible exception of Dr. Tony Fauci, uh, there's really no one I think I'd rather talk to about the novel coronavirus right now. And here's what Dr. Brilliant has going for him that Dr. Fauci can only envy. Uh, he's my constituent. He lives right here in the most beautiful <laughs> congressional district in America. So um, we are thrilled to have Dr. Brilliant uh, doing a deep dive on what it takes to defeat deadly diseases. Uh, it turns out, though, that fighting deadly diseases is just one of the many important things Dr. Brilliant has done in his amazing life. He has um, just done incredible things that are documented in his best-selling autobiography, called Sometimes Brilliant, which I have read and I recommend to all of you, tells the full story of his personal and spiritual journey. Uh, so as you can tell, Larry, I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, welcome to my podcast. Well, I, I think the era of fandom goes more in the opposite direction. Uh, it's a privilege for me to be with you, Jerry. Well, thank you. Uh, like Bill Gates, like a few others in the world, you have been warning us for years that the question wasn't if, it was when a deadly pandemic like this uh, would visit us. Why does it seem like we were so poorly prepared? Oh, you know, I think you're right. I think almost every epidemiologist in the country has been screaming from uh, you know, rooftops uh, that uh, there'd be a pandemic uh, sooner than later. Uh, and our reasoning isn't uh, some kind of uh, foresight or prescience. It's just the data. Um, every year, one or two or three animal viruses leap from monkeys or bats or pigs or birds and infect human beings. We call them zoonoses. Um, and over the last 30 years, there have been about 50 of them capable of starting diseases in humans. And uh, Tony Fauci, who you quoted, who I also respected immensely, said that going forward, it's going to be two or three a year that jump from animals to humans. And as long as that pattern is continuing, it is inevitable that one or two or three of those viruses will attain uh, escape velocity and be able to simultaneously infect a lot of people and uh, unfortunately to kill a lot of people. Um, and why uh, the, the administrations have not taken us seriously, I would say the George W. Bush administration, the Clinton administration, and the Obama administration took these things seriously enough to have established uh, czars for Ebola or for pandemics. 
positions in the National Security Council uh, funded the countries around the world that have broken economies or poor public health systems. And they certainly took it seriously. Why this administration has failed to take it seriously is another question entirely. So we know that the Trump administration emasculated some of the institutional capacity for responding to a pandemic, but they also dropped the ball uh, when the pandemic uh, started spreading. Uh, what went wrong? Tell, tell us uh, your, your assessment here. Well, we can go into the specifics of what went wrong with the test kits or believing that the pandemic was going to disappear in April or that the heat was going to kill it or that bleach would cure it, all those things. But to me, the, the most important image that I have is something which took place actually in the Bay Area. When the uh, Diamond Princess cruise ship wanted to dock to let out and come home uh, hundreds of Marin and San Francisco residents and to let them come out of the ship and, uh, and, and come back to their homes because they, they tested negative or if they had tested positive, or they needed to be quarantined. And Trump said, don't let them touch American shores because if they do, those cases will be counted against me and my numbers will look bad. That is the defining image for me of why we have not responded as well as we should have. Uh, there's a lot of technical stuff. Uh, we didn't accept WHO's offer of a, um, of a test kit that most of the rest of the world used without much drama. We've not reported all the deaths that are due to COVID. We were slow in uh, mobilizing our enormous potential. We've underfunded CDC, disrespected public health. Um, but some of those are much more longer term problems than just this one. Yeah. And the public messaging was a mess as well. Wouldn't you agree? It was confusing. You had uh, all the epidemiologists and the heroes like Tony Fauci saying uh, how bad this was and to prepare yourself and to wear masks and to wash your hands and to practice social distancing. And the president saying, I don't think I'll look good in a mask. Now, why is that? a problem because uh, you, you've been on the front lines of trying to uh, eradicate a deadly disease. You, you ended smallpox uh, in, in the world. You have been part of uh, eradicating polio. Um, what does that do to our public health efforts if people are being told this is no big deal or it's not something they need to take seriously? Well, these are very complicated things. Uh, you're talking about an invisible enemy, uh, odorless, invisible enemy, a virus that you can't see, and uh, you have five or 10 cases, and you have a bunch of experts, you know, uh, supposed experts, telling you that you could extrapolate from those five or 10 cases that there'll be a million cases and hundreds of thousands dead. You know, we're not, we're not programmed to think like that. So the only way that I think people would accept something like that is if uh, there was unanimity in all of their leaders that they respect and that they listen to. And um, that's why public health is so unique and important in that it takes the public and it takes the elected leadership to rally together and, uh, and work on what, whatever we're trying to fix, whether it's cancer, HIV, AIDS, or COVID. Yeah. We didn't have that here. 
Well, and to this day, we do hear these narratives that it's it's not much worse than the common cold. It's uh, it's benign, uh, less less deaths than a bad flu year. Only affects really old and medically fragile people. What is it about this particular virus that you think merits uh, taking it much more seriously than that? So there are elements of truth in every one of the statements that you've made. Um, this virus does not kill as a higher percent of people as Ebola, which was 80 or 90 percent before we had good medical care. It doesn't kill as high a percent as smallpox, which killed one third of all the people. And it doesn't spread as fast as measles. Uh, uh, measles infects, one case of measles infects 12 to 16 other people. Smallpox infected three or four. This virus only infects two and a half or two other people. So the virus doesn't kill as many or spread as fast, but it combines those better from the virus's point of view than any other disease we've seen in our lifetimes or certainly in the last hundred years. If you have a virus that moves and grows at exponential speed and the exponent is more than one, that means the virus will continue chewing through the population until every single person that is susceptible is infected. And if it is a novel virus, that means a virus that has never had a first encounter with human beings before. In the case of contemporary world, there are 7.8 or 8 billion susceptibles. Anything more than an R, a replication value, an R not we call it, greater than one means this virus will infect every single person in the world until either you reach herd immunity or you get a vaccine that also gives you herd immunity. And without those two things having happened, um, the virus will keep going. In this case, the virus is replicating at an exponential rate when the exponent is about 2 or 2.5. And that means it's doubling every three or four days. Uh, and when you give a virus that's growing at an exponential speed an eight-week head start, as we did in the United States, you're going to have millions of cases of that disease. And, and you, can't, you can't really prevent that. It's too late. You can't have those eight weeks back. The math doesn't work like that. You can't say, whoops, I made a mistake. Let's start over. It, it doesn't work like that, unfortunately. It also seems to me that one of the sneaky things about this virus is that it's spread so easily by people who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Why does that uh, kind of contribute to the unique threat that we're dealing with? I think that's a lot more common than people realize. Uh, polio, for example, has an asymptomatic rate of 999 out of 1,000. In other words, with polio, wow. for every 1,000 people that are infected, only one gets the disease. Um, uh, I, I think that you'll find that for most of these uh, respiratory diseases, they are infectious just before symptoms. Po uh, smallpox uh, was infectious just before symptoms, two to four days. Uh, this virus appears to be infectious about three or four days before and three or four days after people get symptoms. Uh, the asymptomatic rate isn't as high as it is in other diseases, and hmm. the pre-symptomatic spread is, is not so unusual. What's unusual is that as a respiratory disease, our first thought is to compare it to flu instead of comparing it to these other respiratory diseases like smallpox. 
which is also a respiratory disease. And like smallpox, COVID affects almost every cell in the body. We joke and say it affects you nose to toes because you lose your sense of smell often and your sense of taste. But it also affects your heart, your lungs, your kidney, your, and even your toes and your fingers because it has some effect on uh, the circulatory system that we haven't quite mapped out yet. And I'm going to put a date stamp on that and say uh, this is the 5th of June because two weeks from now, everything will be different. That's the other thing about a novel virus is that we are all learning together. Um, yeah. I want to say one thing about scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, it is not just the disease that's growing exponentially, so is the science. Uh, MIT has estimated that there are well over 20,000 peer-reviewed articles published on COVID in the last four months. We're learning at a very rapid rate, but the virus is still ahead of us because we gave it a head start. Yeah. So uh, we moved into a mitigation mode with stay-at-home orders um, over the course of the last two to three months, depending on where you are in this country. And now we're starting to relax some of that and move to a risk-based model. Uh, here in the North Bay, this weekend is going to look a lot different than the last several weekends with all kinds of new activities allowed as long as we maintain social distancing and other precautions. What are you concerned about going forward as we start down this path of reopening? Well, the first thing to say is that social distancing, masks, and hand washing work. They have stopped this disease from running like a wildfire through the country. We've already had 108,000 deaths. We're close to 2 million cases already in the United States alone. And this is a slowed down version of what we would have had if we had not done the social distancing. Uh, some colleagues of mine from Columbia published about a week ago an analysis that 50% of the deaths that we have had could have been prevented if we had started social distancing two weeks earlier. You can imagine then how many deaths we would have had if we had postponed social distancing by another two weeks. Um, so point number one, social distancing works. Point number two, we're not anywhere close to a time when we should be relaxing. I wish we were. I wish that this epidemic curve looked like Mount Shasta, where the <laughs> angle of the incline was equal to the angle of the decline, or Mount Fuji. But it doesn't. It looks more like rolling waves of a tsunami. And right behind the first wave, is another wave and then another. While we have a break, a plateau, or a trough in those waves, that's not the time to take our foot off of the gas. If we find every case, contact trace, find all the people who are shedding virus, and we quarantine them, which is about one or two percent of the population, then we can open up the rest of the population. But that's not what we're doing. And we will all pay the price for that because this disease is not limited just to the states in which it begins. It will, in fact, reinfect the rest of the country and the rest of the world. So we need to do two things at once. When we want to open up, we need to close down by finding every case, testing them, testing them, do contact tracing, testing them find those cases which should be quarantined and isolated and just isolate those. We don't need to isolate people who don't have the disease and are not at high risk of the disease. 
but we need to use epidemiology to determine which states and which areas to open, not politics. And that's the problem that we face right now. So in these places, they're seeing the spread of the virus as, as a couple of weeks ago, we, many of us thought they would start to see from these scenes of Lake of the Ozarks and other places where there seemed to be no uh, precautions whatsoever. Um, are they ready to do this kind of intensive uh, tracking and tracing and isolation that you're talking about? Yes. It's never too late to start finding cases and doing contact tracing and quarantining the people who are sick. That's the right thing to do. Um, it's, it's always a good thing to do that. But it's especially good when the case counts are lower. Because when the case counts are lower, it's easier to find every case. Right. Um, we can do it all, all the time, but then you need more contact tracers, you need more resources, uh, and it, it's just too difficult. Something tells me, though, as I look at that map you just showed us, that those states haven't gone out and hired the, the trackers and the tracers and, and implemented this. This, this is labor-intensive stuff, and uh, I'm certainly not hearing about that kind of a program there or really in many other places in the country. Well, you know about this, uh, this addendum to the bill that uh, Scott Gottlieb and Andy Slatkin and uh, a group of us promoted, which was to actually pay people who are found to be sick with the disease, pay them $50 a day, which is what you pay a federal juror, to stay home or to stay in isolation in a hotel, to pay for the hotel and to pay for the contact tracers. Yeah. Um, if we do that and we do this countrywide, that'll help us get ahead of the virus. Um, we need to provide the resources for us to do the right thing because we haven't done that yet, Jared. Yeah, and we took uh, a lot of your advice when we put together the HEROES Act a few weeks ago to, to try to start something like that in motion. We've got more work to do. Um, let me ask you about the, the global aspect of this. Right now, our president is trying to end our cooperation with the World Health Organization. Is it possible to fight a pandemic like this in isolation? And what would you like to see the U.S. government doing right now um, as we think about COVID-19? But, you know, also, I, I think I read a few days ago that there's a new uh, Ebola outbreak in, in Africa. Seems like an odd time to uh, undermine uh, the WHO. Yeah, leaving, leaving the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic, um, that's, that's very difficult for me to even begin to comprehend. Um, you know, it's not only that WHO is important. Um, I think a lot of us who work in WHO have days when we love WHO and days that we don't. Uh, it's a complex organization. But ironically, it was us in the United States who set the rules for WHO. We helped to create the organizational structure of WHO, which I admit is dysfunctional. Um, WHO is governed by the World Health Assembly, in which every country gets a vote on everything that WHO does. Uh, and WHO is organized in regions where the regional directors spend the money, not the director general. Um, it's a complex structure, but it worked for smallpox eradication. We could not have eradicated smallpox without WHO. We could not have eradicated polio from most of the world. Uh, it's only now in one country, one and a half countries, Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, without WHO. WHO sets the standards. 
uh, for so many of the drugs that we use, the pharmaceutical drugs that we use, so many of the vaccines that we use, a world in which the United States and WHO are not partners is inherently in a less safe world and a less healthy world. And in fact, it isn't even clear how you can leave WHO. Um, I think a little bit of it is, uh, is some political gamesmanship. Yeah. But WHO is critical to the success of this arrangement because once we get a vaccine for COVID now, you don't get rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> once you get a vaccine, what you get is a vaccination program. And we're going to have to conduct a vaccination campaign in 220 countries. If we don't do that with WHO, how are we going to be able to accomplish that? And if we don't accomplish that, this virus is going to ping pong back and forth for years to come. Well, you, you beat me to it. My next question was going to be about vaccines. Um, I am sure that one of the keys to your ability to eradicate smallpox from the planet Earth uh, was having a proven safe and effective vaccine as one of the tools uh, at your disposal. And uh, I imagine it might have been a very different challenge had there not been a vaccine. And so what I'm wondering is if you could speak to, uh, I guess, your, your confidence that we're going to see a vaccine and any, any time frames that you might uh, suggest that we would expect for that. And then what are the implications of getting back to normal, either with or without a vaccine as we head down this road? Well, let me first mention that we had a vaccine against smallpox for 200 years yeah. before we eradicated smallpox. We had a vaccine against polio for 70 years before we got so far in ending polio. Um, being able to produce a vaccine as quickly as we're trying to will set all the speed records. Up until now, the fastest vaccine ever produced um, was the mumps vaccine, and that took four years. So the idea that we will have a vaccine in 12 to 18 months, as Tony Fauci says, that is a great aspiration. Um, I hope we can do it. Having said that, uh, there are 200 candidate vaccines that are in some phase of study all over the world. They've been created in 50 some odd countries. Uh, the US and China have a lead in the number of, of vaccine candidates we have. Um, there's at least six of them that look very promising. Uh, at least four or five of those have already been injected into human beings. We're seeing safety trial results that are good even some efficacy trials that are very good, by which I mean somebody's been given the vaccine and they've created antibodies, and those antibodies appear to be neutralizing antibodies. So the vaccine progress is very encouraging. That doesn't mean that we're going to get it done by the time frame that we've established for ourselves. It's very difficult to prove that a vaccine not only works against the target virus, doesn't do any harm, can be made at scale, at a cost that works, and can be delivered worldwide in a form that is amenable to such a wide-scale program. So, in other words, if we just get a vaccine that's like the flu vaccine, where you have to get an annual shot, that complicates the job of taking it worldwide immensely. If we just get a vaccine that requires being kept cold in ice, we call the cold chain, it makes it so difficult to take it into places like India and Africa. So it's not just a question of when we get a vaccine. It's also a question of which kind of vaccine we get. But I'm optimistic 
that we will get a vaccine that fulfills our basic criteria. And I hope it will be within the time frame that Tony Fauci has predicted. Yeah, still not before the next 12 to 18 months you would, you would expect. I think we'll start seeing smaller batches of it, some trials and make it available for the people who need it the most, um, especially for first responders, um, especially for people who uh, have a lot of risk factors. Um, I hope that we'll be able to see that uh, sooner than that. But in large quantities for the average person, I think that 12 to 18 month time frame is very optimistic and I hope we can make it. The, the other question you asked me is, what does it look like when we can get back to normal? And, yeah. um, and, and then you have to ask the question of when. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're talking about back to normal after we have the vaccine, I think we can live with this disease in a fairly normal way. If we have the vaccine, it works and we have it in sufficient quantities that it's just a question of the mechanics of getting the vaccine out and getting people vaccinated. Then we will be living with COVID in a way that we live with HIV AIDS. Um, let us never forget that HIV AIDS is a horrible pandemic that has killed over 50 million people. Uh, let's not pretend that because it takes such a long time to affect people or it seems to be so far away, that it is not an equally or even more cruel disease. But we have learned to live with it. Um, and we've learned to live with other diseases. We can learn to live with COVID, but not until we have either a cure or a vaccine. Yeah. Well, I, I think, Dr. Brilliant, I wanna take you out of this narrow lane of uh, epidemiology and public health and take you into a very broad lane uh, of social justice, because it turns out uh, you have done some amazing work in that field as well. You were uh, someone who joined the tribal occupation of Alcatraz many, many years ago, provided medical services to protesters uh, in that particular moment. Uh, in the decades that followed, you've been on scene to help some of the most impoverished people in the world, uh, dealing with not just diseases, but natural disasters. And I want to ask you your thoughts about this moment we're in with COVID-19 certainly laying bare some disparities and injustices that were with us all along. Uh, and then, of course, the concurrent crisis of uh, racism and police abuse and uh, the international protests that we're seeing in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Um, there's a lot uh, converging in this moment. And... Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts about how we should be thinking uh, about these twin epidemics, a, a pandemic and also an injustice problem, both of which uh, predominantly affect people of color. Oh, of course, when I saw that horrible image of, of George Floyd dying um, in front of our eyes, and uh, I think it broke all of our hearts. Um, and from it, the reminder that that goes on outside of the reach of cameras every day for African-Americans and have, has done so for 400 years. Um, when I was younger uh, and I was at the University of Michigan as a student, Martin Luther King came to speak to us. And I was fortunate to meet him and to spend the, the next five years um, 
as a doctor or even as a medical student with a white coat on as part of the Medical Committee for Human Rights, marching with Dr. King. Um, we were all trained in nonviolence. Uh, I see echoes of that time now, but the fact that it's still taking us so long to even talk about racial justice is as heartbreaking as the as it could possibly be. I, I'm the wrong person to speak to this issue. I'm an old white man. My generation has failed to solve this problem. I'm, I'm a witness to uh, a tragedy that's been with us for such a long time. It's heartbreaking to me. It's just heartbreaking. Well, as a soldier in this fight, though, for all these years, you are a good person to ask this question. Do you think it's different this time? Well, we have social media. Uh, thank God we have phones that can take photos. Uh, thank God that we have the evidence of police brutality. And hopefully that will allow us to have a real conversation with real data, not made up stories uh, when, when police deny what has happened. Um, but of course, it's a lot more than only police. It's a lot more than only the criminal justice system. It's the institutional racism that follows uh, the original sin of America. We've never confronted um, in any holistic way uh, reparations and, and the issues that we need to face if we are to make this country the, the best version of ourselves that we all, all aspire to. You know, our, our slogan is e pluribus unum, out of many one. Um, I think this administration has forgotten that. They, they, they seem to be playing against that in every way they can. But I believe that. I mean, I think that's why many of us uh, aspirationally see this as a different country. We're not a country of one language or one religion or one race. We're not bound by any of those strictures that so many other countries are. We're bound by a, a document and a dream. We're bound by a constitution that we all aspire to and a dream that it can be available to everyone. This is a moment to, um, for us to all realize how short we come in comparison to what that aspiration is. I mean, my, my hope is that like the movements of the 60s that uh, caused us to look inside and to restructure our world, uh, this movement that we are watching being created in real time, right in front of our eyes, uh, will have a more durable impact on the world than we did. Well, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Brilliant. As a, as a guy who has a tie-dyed face mask and uh, <laughs> named his first child Abby Huffman, uh, you know where my heart oh, is there you uh, go. <laughs> when it comes to uh, protests. Didn't know that. Didn't know that. <laughs> uh, thank you for We're sharing that with us. Uh, we certainly admire your... Um, contributions to epidemiology and infectious diseases, uh, but also your big heart and, uh, and your vision. And I'm so glad you shared it with us. It, what a great plug for your book, because people can, uh, can get a lot more of this wisdom uh, if they read Sometimes Brilliant, a phenomenal autobiography that I recommend to everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. Just remember what Abby Hoffman said. He said, steal this book. And never trust anyone over 30. That worked for me for a few years. But, uh... <laughs> I think that might work for my kids. <laughs> Thank you.
Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman. <laughs>